0: Hello, welcome to episode nine of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. Today's episode is based on chapter five of the book, and it's called Music Publishing Isn't Scary or Confusing. Um, well, the full chapter title in the book is Plus How to Land a Sync Placement, but that's going to be next week's episode, the sync placement stuff with uh, Lauren Ross. But today I'm going to interview Song Trust President Molly Newman, before I do, I just want to define music publishing and educate you on how to collect on it, which we cover for the most part in Molly's interview, but I just want to give like an educational piece so you have all of that information before before you listen to that interview. So first, what is music publishing? Um, Music publishing (laughs) has definitely freaked out songwriters slash artists for a long time. And I understand why, uh, in the 20, in the like 1950s, 60s, 70s, there are countless horror stories of songwriters signing their music publishing away, you know, signing their music publishing rights away for what feels like a lot of money. I'm just making this up, but like $25,000 in 1970. And then the catalog goes on to make millions Um, I, I always use this example. I was on a panel once years ago with the village people's current manager, and I think the panel must've been on music publishing or it came up and I said, well, I'm going to guess that if any of the village people guys wrote YMCA and those famous songs that they don't own the rights to the publishing and the manager, uh, said, yes, said that that was correct. So back in the day, uh, you had to sign your publishing Rights away to collect on your publishing. But again, let me define it. I probably should have done that first. So, as we've talked about, there are two rights in music there's the master recording side, and then there's the songwriting side. So, music publishing, so let me back up. I swear it's easy, I promise. Everyone knows what a record company is supposed to do in theory. Um, I assume everyone does. I feel like I could stop someone on the street and they would, for the most part, understand what a record company does. So a record company's job is to promote and legally exploit, as in collect as much money as possible for the master recording. That's their job. Collect as much money as possible on the recording and uh, promote it so it gets as much money as possible. All music publishing is, is the exact same thing for your songwriting. So there's no reason to run to the hills in terror, you know, being completely overwhelmed and intimidated by music publishing. And I think that happens for two reasons. One, there are a variety of revenue streams that make up music publishing, but I just want to teach you what it is and how you collect on it. If you want to go read a book about music publishing and learn about well, I should define a mechanical royalty, but learn about all of the sub-revenue streams that make up music publishing. Feel free to do that. Keep that book on the shelf. But I, like the vast majority of songwriters slash artists that I meet don't know, and industry people. There are tons of industry people. Um, you know, I'm jumping around, but I remember being in a meeting with someone who was 20 years older than me and had been working in the industry his entire adult life who said, oh, I never understood all that music publishing stuff. And that just super confused me because it's like, if you're going to enter a field, in this case, the music industry, don't you want to um, know everything about it? But like I said, so there's all these sub-revenue streams. I don't think you need to know that. You need to know what music publishing is, which is what I just defined and how to collect on it, which I'll talk about next. So again, that and then the collecting on it, that's also the scary Part from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, because to collect on it, you had to sign your music publishing rights away to collect on it. So there's a lot of horror stories, but it's not like that anymore. I mean, you can still do those deals, which I'll talk about, but um, you can own your rights and collect on your music publishing, which is very exciting. So I write a song, or you write a song, or an album, or an EP, or an opera, or whatever. And the first thing you want to do, which is what we covered in the previous episode, is you want to make sure that you are signed up for a performing rights organization. Um, In the U.S., that's primarily ASCAP and BMI. So pick one, register yourself, sign up only once, but every time you write a song and you agree to the songwriting splits and you put it in writing and you sign it or you email it to each other, as as we've talked about, then you log in to your PRO, so ASCAP or BMI in in the US, and you register the songs. So that's the first thing you do. And I don't know if we covered that part clearly enough in the previous episode. Every time you write a song, you know, if you're a solo songwriter, just uh, register it with your PRO. If it's a co-write, obviously agree to the splits, and then you both need to register it. So that's the first step. And like I said in the previous episode and said throughout the podcast— I totally understand. You know, when you sign up for a PRO, uh, you are not collecting on your publishing in full. And that is understandably totally confusing because when you sign up for a PRO, that is also split into two sides. Uh, the writer's share and the quote publisher's share. And so when it, when ASCAP, for example, prompts me to create what's called a publishing designee, they're like, oh, you're Emily White, the songwriter. Great. So that's your writer's share. Do you want to be Emily White music?
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: For your publisher's share, of course, that's totally confusing. It's like, oh, that's my publisher's share. So my publishing is all set. So ASCAP is not... ASCAP and BMI and performing rights organizations are not music publishers. They just collect performing rights royalties. So if your music is being covered, streamed, sold, any, all of the above, and you are just signed up for a PRO, you are missing money. And that is what this chapter and episode is about. I have worked with way too many songwriters and artists um, that people have heard of that have national, international careers that were not collecting on their music publishing. So if you, if um, again, if you are just signed up for your performing rights organization uh, as a songwriter and you are not collecting on your publishing in any other way, you are most likely uh, missing money. I, I only say most likely, most likely because I assume there's some activity going on with your songs, which we talked about previously. There's like very much likely money sitting there, so go get it, and that's what we're going to talk about. So, if you are just getting going, I am a huge advocate of Song Trust and not because they've sponsored a previous episode or they're sponsoring a future episode and Molly's on this episode. Um, as I mentioned, that is a very authentic partnership. What I love, okay, so on the recorded music side, on the distribution side, most people know what TuneCore, CD Baby, DistroKid, which we're going to get into in a future episode what they do. They distribute your music, get it on Spotify, all that good stuff that has, well, good ish stuff. But again, we'll, we'll break down distribution in a uh, in multiple episodes in the future. But what those services essentially did was democratize music distribution because in the pre digital era, you would have to sign your recording rights away to a record company. If you were fortunate enough to do it because record companies, um, could afford recording studios, which were like only one percenters could afford back in the day, which I know seems um, like a different planet because it kind of was in many ways. And the record company also held the keys to distribution. So TuneCore, CD Baby, DistroKid, um, that has now opened that up to anyone for 30 bucks, 50 bucks, whatever the latest terms are, um, you can distribute your music worldwide. Song Trust completely democratized music publishing, where, like I said, back in the day, you used to pretty much have to, I, I say pretty much because there were people that would sign up for their, you know, try to collect all their sub-publishing revenue streams, but um, I, am, I am a workaholic, but that is just an absurd amount of work. So you would have to sign your rights, So especially in the pre-digital era. So you would have to sign your music publishing rights away for a company to come in and collect those royalties on your behalf. So SongTrust was the first major player in the game to completely democratize uh, music publishing collection. So anyone can go to SongTrust and um, sign up. It is a $100 fee to sign up, which, uh, I mean, I don't totally love that. So just to show you, like, how authentic these, you know, my partnerships are, like, I'm always going to be open, uh, with you all what I think, but song trust runs a lot of, you know, webinars, promos. Like I'm sure if you just search their social media or check out some of their events, you can get a discount code for that. So after the hundred dollars, um, song trust is going to collect 85 or sorry. Um, song, song trust is going to collect your music publishing revenue and you as a songwriter are going to keep 85% and they keep 15. I believe that's off the top of my head. Um, I don't think it's 80-20, but uh, all of those are very akin to an administrative publishing deal, which I, I, I would I, um, I'm trying to say all of those percentages in terms. So I'm 90 I'm 99% sure it's 85% 15, but it's it's around there for song trust. Um, you can get out of Song trust relatively quickly. Again, I should have looked these things up, but I, I know this for a fact. Song trust does not take any uh, rights ownership, okay? They are there to go and administer and collect on your publishing. Um, I hope that's clear. Now, there are other companies that do that, and I'm going to uh, highlight two in particular um, that are really similar, and Molly and I talk about this. So when you do distribute through... TuneCore or song, uh, sorry, TuneCore or CD Baby, and I assume DistroKid, but we're going to dig into DistroKid in a future episode. There's like a box. There's a prompt that that comes up when you're distributing your music, and I'm completely paraphrasing, but it's like, do you want to collect more money? And basically, you can opt in through your through those distributors. They're called aggregators in the quote, music industry, but um, they are technically distributors. There's a box where it basically asks, you know, can we administer your publishing on these songs, on this album? But its phrase is like, want to make more money? And it's like, who wouldn't click yes? So again... <laughs> I have worked with artists um, where I've said, have you ever checked that box? Have you ever checked that box? And they're like, no. And then I go out and do a publishing deal for them. And it turns out the answer is yes. (laughs) And we have to untangle the catalog. And um, it can literally take years to get everything flowing in the right place. So. As, as appealing as that box is, I encourage you not to check those boxes, even though I know for the people that know, and Molly and I talk about this, SongTrust and CD Baby are owned by the same company. So SongTrust is CD Baby's publishing administrator. But my point is, if you distribute through CD Baby once, but then maybe you do DistroKid next time, or maybe you sign with a label or whatever, then your publishing is suddenly all over the place. And what I love about Songtrust is your music publishing is housed in one place. So, um, I, I again, I, I swear I was Songtrust fangirl um, before they started sponsoring episodes. But you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this in the future if we if we talk about branding and stuff. But you know, those partnerships work when they're authentic, and, and that one is. But I would be remiss to not talk about traditional music publishing deals for those of you. Um, that are interested in that or have that, or whatever. So there are two main kinds of music publishing deals in the modern era. There's an admin or administrative deal, And that's where, um very similar to the song trust terms, you own the rights to your music publishing. Um, this split definitely is negotiable. Um if you can get eighty five percent in your favor, fifteen percent to the publishing administrator, great. Um, sometimes it's eighty twenty. I wouldn't go as low as seventy five twenty five without some sort of advance, even if it's like five hundred bucks or a thousand bucks or just some sort of gesture. That's where that can be negotiable, right? So maybe you don't want or need an advance. Um, and say they're offering you seventy five twenty five and a thousand dollar advance. You could say, you know what, I want to waive the thousand bucks, and I'd rather do eighty twenty because that's a better split. There's no there's no right or wrong. Um, the more success you have, the uh, larger you grow your catalog, the more activity there is um, on your catalog on the songwriting side. That's where you can creep those numbers up. I mean, I'm making this, uh, maybe I'm making this up, maybe I'm not, but <laughs> you know, like Max Martin and those pop songwriters that wrote like Britney Spears' big hits and I'm sure many more. Um, I think I heard they have like a 1% <laughs> admin deal, right? So they keep 9 90- Ninety-nine percent of their song, uh, their their music publishing royalties, and um, the administrator gets one percent. And the administrator is psyched to get one percent because that that's a lot of money. So the big difference between song trust and an administrative deal, even though they're really really similar, like I said, as far as like the term, well, I'll talk about the terms in a second. As far as the percentages go, um, song trust does not do sync pitching. So if you're signed up for SongTrust, don't worry, we cover how to land a sync placement uh, next week. But um, yeah, just know that. And then with an administrative publishing deal, they should be pitching you to sync. So that is also, also part of that. Now, there's also co-publishing agreements, and that's where um, a publisher is going to take a percentage of your copyright. Sometimes it's for, like, 20, 25 years. Sometimes it's in perpetuity, a.k.a. forever. Only do this if you are receiving a significant advance. And... I mean, once in a while, I st- i mean, really once in a blue moon, thankfully, but once in a while, I still hear of, you know, music publishing companies trying to become an artist, music publisher, a co-publisher, taking a percentage of copyright and not offering an, an advance. Now, believe it or not, I'm not against co-publishing deals because I've had artists get, you know, advances where, that are large enough where they can buy a home or, maybe large enough, not that large, but large enough where it can fund promotion, it can fund a tour in early days. Um, so I, I've done that with artists before. I did that with a with a young band where they owned their master recording, but we did a lucrative publishing deal for them. And then that helped to basically fund um, kind of setting up their own label. So- once you understand these fundamentals, and I, I'm talking about all of it, like the master recording side, you know, we talked about getting creative with uh, different points if you don't necessarily have cash, um, you know, same here. You can get creative with, you know, your different rights, I feel like, if you fundamentally understand the bigger picture. So, like I said, I've given up publishing rights either always with the artist's permission, obviously, either if that's a situation I walked into and they were always getting, you know, big advances for co-publishing deals and giving up that portion of copyright, um, every time they release an album, or like I said, there's, I've worked with new artists that are into it who wanted to retain their master recording rights, but were open to a co-publishing deal on, um, on uh, on the on the songwriting or music publishing side to the extent that a friend reached out to me once and he'd been offered a publishing deal and wanted me to take a look look at it um he's not old but it wasn't his first rodeo, rodeo by any means he was probably in his 30s and it was a $2000 advance for a co-publishing deal and i knew this person like, wasn't super broke and didn't necessarily need the two grand. This was before the pandemic. And I said to him, I'm like, if you need two grand, like, go work at Starbucks or something because they are going to take a portion of your copyright for the next 20 years. So I did the math for him, whatever, like, 2,000 is divided by 20. I was like, that's how much you're getting per year to give up a portion of your copyright for this $2,000 advance. And he did the thing that artists always do. And I told him that. He's like, well, I'm scared. I'm scared to say anything. And I said to him, go back to them and ask if they only do co-publishing deals or if they are open to an admin deal. And there's nothing wrong with asking that. It's a very informed question. I don't remember the answer, to be honest. Long story short, he was able to get the advance up to 7,500 once he really understood, you know, the difference between an admin deal and a co-pub deal. I still think that's too low. I would have liked to see 10 or 15 grand for him, but. Um, it it was his choice. He felt good about the 7,500, and that's obviously a lot more than $2,000. So I hope that gives you a fundamental understanding of what music publishing is, how to collect on it. And I don't really have anything else to say about that, because that's all I want you to understand. Like I said, we don't need to get overwhelmed about every little royalty rate and you know, every nuance of modern copyright. You can, I mean, especially if you want to become an activist in that space, amazing. But I just want, I fundamentally want you to know what music publishing is and how you collect on it. And finally, if you are in some sort of publishing deal, um, we've talked a lot about how to, you know, work with industry people, work with uh, different partners to maximize benefits for you. And you know, I, I talk in the book like, congratulations, you have a publishing pu- publishing deal. Now it's time to get to work, which might feel weird because you've probably had meetings, maybe even, you know, depending on pandemic times or not, like a dinner or whatever, where all these people are excited about you and your songwriting. And they are. They wouldn't work with you if, if that wasn't the case. However, we want you to be a priority, even if you're one of the greatest songwriters in history, which I don't uh, mean sarcastically at all. And, you know, put yourself in the publisher's shoes. We want to make their job as seamless as possible. And they are literally more often than not working with thousands of songs, thousands of copyrights. So even if you're Paul McCartney, we want you and your songs to stand out. So in my experience, the best way to do that is just to keep your publisher informed on the latest and greatest, which... I think we've talked about before. We're definitely going to talk about throughout the podcast as far, like I said, as far as working with industry partners. So, you know, you don't want to email them every day on weekends, on holidays, because the goal is for your email to get read. I would say once a month, if there is news, you know, a really short and focused and to the point email, it can be bullet pointed of here's my latest and greatest. I have these shows coming up. I have these webcasts coming up. You know, if you or anyone on your team or music supervisors would like guest lists or guest list codes for the webcast, let me know. I mean, so many artists and their teams and songwriters and their teams don't do that or just kind of take that for granted, you know, just offering guest lists and stuff like that. Um, Here are some press hits I've gotten. Here's uh, just whatever your latest and greatest news is. And that's going to help you, um, you know, help help for you to stay in the forefront of your music publisher and sync pitching team's minds. And it's also going to uh, give them tools to be able to share those links and share those tour dates with music supervisors and work your catalog as hard as possible. And if you can't, uh, Oh, and also like, like I said, don't send on like weekends and holidays and stuff. I would say, send these emails. Like I'd say your best time is like late morning on a Tuesday Um, you know, Monday, midday is good. Wednesday is okay. I'm sure I overthink this stuff, but I'm also sure that I don't. Um, As it gets into Thursday and Friday, people are dragging, especially as shows are returning and stuff like they can be fried by the end of the week. So again, the whole point is for email to get read, for it to be as effective as possible. If you can't send the email at that time, there's plenty of free programs like Boomerang for Gmail, where you can schedule your emails to send at a more optimal time. So that's my overview of music publishing. I hope it's helpful. I hope you understand what it is now, how to collect on it. And now I'm going to dig in even more by interviewing Song Trust president Molly Newman. So thanks so much. And we'll catch you next next week on episode nine, which is the second half of the chapter five title, How to Land a Sync Placement. But in the meantime, we'll continue on with Molly and music publishing isn't scary or confusing. Hope you enjoy. And Talk to you soon. Hello, my name is Emily White, and welcome to How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. And today we're going to dig in on Chapter 5, Music Publishing Isn't Scary or Confusing, Plus How to to Land a Sync Placement. Um, I'm so thrilled to welcome my guest, SongTrust President Molly Newman. Welcome, Molly.
1: Hi, Emily. Thanks for having me.
0: It is so my pleasure. Um so let's start at the beginning. You you honestly have one of the coolest and most interesting careers I've ever seen. Um mm-hmm. so well first like you're a musician. Are do you still play music?
1: You know, I um I don't have the opportunity right now, especially in December of 2020, but um uh, and because of my calendar and my family and all of the sort of things that, that life has been generous enough to give me. But, um, I do still consider myself a drummer. I just am not playing very much.
0: Yeah. Um, if you don't mind, if I ask a personal question, how Mm -hmm. old are your kids and do they play music at all?
1: I only have one daughter. She'll be seven soon. Nice. Um, she doesn't play yet, but she has a keyboard and she has a couple of the sort of early kid guitars. She's taken music classes and she seems musical, but you know, we're doing our best not to, to shove her in any one direction just yet. Of course. I just think it would be so
0: cool to have a, a parent or a mom that's a drummer because that's like the first thing that kids do you know?
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We're going to be, um, I'll be talking to her class in January around, um, you know, sort of, they are doing a segment uh, about imagination. And so they asked if any parents had careers that were connected to creativity. And so I'm going to be talking a little bit about that, even though I'm currently working in what's arguably the least Actually, creative part of our industry, but I think is you know the most compelling and um, truthfully energizing. If we can help be part of a, an improved um, ecosystem around how to manage these you know complicated sets of rights, um, then you know it's it's all math. And even though I've never considered myself, you know, I, I'm one of those people that was sort of profiled as like, oh, not particularly good at math, but you know drums and music are all about numbers and repetition and intersection of patterns, and as is music publishing.
0: <laughs> I love it. And I, I actually think music publishing is, is very creative, um, and, and we'll get into that. Um, But take us to take us to the beginning. Um, When did you first start playing music? You obviously just have a phenomenal career as a musician and um, have done so much. So so start there in in the early days for us, Mm -hmm. if you don't mind. No,
1: I I, when I was in college, um, I brought a guitar. I think I used my my summer job money between high school and college to buy an acoustic guitar and took it to college. I think that was a very sort of like connecting image that I could like, you know, you bring guitar and acoustic, you play in your dorm room, 10,000 Maniacs was like probably one of my favorite bands. And so, you know, acoustic rock, um, was something that, you know, I, I could sort of, um, it be inspired by. And, um, I took, I ended up taking guitar classes at school um it's sort of a way to just like, oh, the, you know, when you want to learn something, you take a class um, in addition to the other subjects that I was studying. And um, my next-door neighbor in the dorms was from a town called Olympia, Washington, which has a pretty – I'm from Washington, D.C., and we met at the University of Oregon. And she um, just shared some of the music that was from her town, which was really accessible um, and you you might say amateurish. But, you know, I say accessible, that, you know, it was just something that anybody could do. It was super melodic, super catchy and memorable. And we started making songs together before we were actually a band that, you know, played. And we were learning at the same time. Um, by my second year of school, I had traded um, my acoustic guitar in for a, um, like, a, probably like a 65 Music Master Defender. It's, it's a three and a quarter size um, Fender guitar that looks like a small Mustang basically with one pickup and um, it was really cool I still have it um, and it was something that you know I was like okay so we're sort of pivoting from acoustic to punk and we started our band and um, it was just the two of us at first and she was a singer and lyricist and I was the the sort of like instrumentalist so I wrote um, I did the guitar parts and then there were some songs where I just played drums And when we recorded, I did both. And then we added a guitar player, um, after that. So it was, that was like an evolution of, you know, sort of like layers of, of instrumentation on top of what we were doing. And, um, so that band became Bratmobile. Um, we, you know, were students and doing most of our, um, our work while we were studying and while we were in school, but like touring in the summer and in spring breaks and stuff like that. And, um, and a little bit by coastal because Aaron was based in DC. Allison and I were on the West coast for school, but my family is in DC. So we were kind of like, you know, just took everything that we could, um, you know, cheap plane tickets, which was like well well before the time of, you know, ubiquitous jet blue cheap flights and things like that. Um, And, you know, that was like the opportunity. We were also talking about um, feminism and issues of like opportunity for girls and women, particularly, um, and so that was a, a bit of the sort of community that we were connecting with um, at the same time. So how did you make the transition into you know
0: running and owning labels and and becoming a manager? I mean, that is fairly different than than being an artist.
1: Yeah, so we you know, um, after I graduated college, I ended up moving to the Bay Area and sort of was part of the East Bay punk rock scene. Um, and Lookout Records was the, the, you know, the label of record there um, in, a say, in, a way, in a fashion similar to Discord in D.C., really documenting mostly the local bands and the, and the um, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of local community. Um, and I had an opportunity to work for Lookout um, right when Green Day was becoming sort of this, one of the biggest bands in the world. Um, when their first album came out on, um, Warner and ironically, like I remember you mentioned before we started, um, talking to Don Passman and I remember before they did their deal with Warner, um, Trey and the drummer and I like chatting at a show and he was talking about their, you know, their, all the options that they had. And he's like, yep, our lawyer, Don Passman, he wrote the book you know, and he was talking about, you know, Don Passman's book as like sort of the, the quintessential guide, which it still is for many of us, you know, and a sort of funny like circle of of history. Um, but, you know, when they became huge, um, there were, the, the label had been super small and managed on sort of like a very, very like, you know, punk and, you know, duct taped sort of way of of putting things together and so I came in to put a little bit of infrastructure around it and do some, you know, support for the other bands that basically weren't Green Day, um, and Green Day was no longer an active label um, band on the roster, but the catalog was, and that was in their, you know, '94. So it was a really, you know, kind of crazy time in music. The Offspring was becoming huge. Rancid became huge shortly thereafter. Who were also from the East Bay, um, and punk was was, you know, like becoming mainstream in lots of ways independent artists were being signed by majors um some to you know some success and some to you know controversial results you know still to this day um, and you know so that was sort of like the the ecosystem that we were operating in and you know you know just growing up like learning new things taking on you know developing relationships with some of the bands that we signed like the Donnas um, resulted in me becoming their manager with a partner. Um, who had been their business manager also. And so, you know, that just sort of opened up new areas to explore that I was interested in. I've always been pretty curious um, and learning by doing seemed to be a pretty consistent way of approaching, um, you know, and having access to even when the Don signed to a major, you know, learning about how they did things and, you know, taking advantage of that network um, I felt was valuable to the other part of my my work at lookout still with our other bands, and so you know it's it's that's been kind of the recipe through my career is like, oh, there's something interesting to do, I'd like to learn about it. I would say that you know perhaps at this later phase of my career, I'm able to luckily you know mostly focus on one job, which is also a very big job. Now that I'm at Song Trust. there's a lot of, you know, of work to do. And we have a large team that, you know, we're very committed to as well as our clients. Um, so being able to sort of like thread all of those things together, but the early commitment to independence and do it yourself, um, you know, ethics combined with the way that our industry has transformed through, you know, um, uh, streaming and you know digital sales and you know all and a global network that's accessible to independent you know songwriters and and musicians now is you know just a completely different world um, and so you know I, I also try to remain thoughtful about the fact that you know we don't know what's next you know so you kind of always have to stay on your toes.
0: Definitely. And I'm sure that curiosity is what interested you in kind of entering the tech space a little bit more. Um, so how, yeah, yeah, how did, how did, um, you know, moving on to e-music come come about?
1: Well, I had been, you know, our label was a client of the orchard, which was a sister company of e And we had been having, um, you know, conversations about, um, you know, just the general business of, of, you know, that relationship. Um, and, I got a call at one point when I was doing mostly management at that point. So it was about 2006. And I had been consulting a little bit for the orchard on some of their sort of international, um, label and, you know, sort of new, new labels that they wanted to bring in. Um, and they said, you know, we have this new role at eMusic around, um, you know, label relations. It's been, we're, we're sort of changing leadership and management of it. And, you know, would you be interested and, so I hadn't really considered a full-time job at a at a different company until then but um it did seem like a good fit it was a great opportunity and I um I'm glad that I took that so it you know sort of pivoted into the space it was a, a you know the company at that point was focused 100% on independent um repertoire So that was a very nice fit. And I think, you know, my background gave it a little bit of a different um, sort of understanding around, you know, some of the issues that were important to, to independent companies. Um, I was also at that point, you know, on the board of HYM, um, which, you know, had just been started then. And so, you know, it was like a, a really nice um, opportunity for me to grow in. And, and you know, they were, there was international expansion happening expansion happening so i was able to you know take advantage of that and learn you know new new parts of the business and um you know also learn more about like different kinds of licensing and deal management and things like that where, which were um you know have been relevant in my career
0: okay that's amazing and then you moved on to become the head of music for kickstarter which i feel like like when you were there that's i mean if it's okay to say that's when it was really in its heyday <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I'm very proud of that, of that time working at Kickstarter. I was, you know, asked to join them, uh, by my former e-music colleagues, um, you know, Yancy Strickler, who was a co-founder and CEO at the time and Kendall Ratley and, um, now Kendall Shore, sorry. And, um, you know, we had, um, you know, always kept in touch and always maintained good, um, relationships I was very proud of what they were doing and they had not yet um, had the chance to put someone in to Help support the music category that had come from the industry. So the woman who had been sort of the primary um, sort of person on the on the music category, um, Haley was. You know, she had done a great job, and she worked on incredible campaigns, as you know, um, Amanda Palmer specifically from the Amanda side, um, and then became part of the. Um, the Kickstarter team. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there was a, it was a strong foundation, though the campaigns that had run prior to me joining were De La Soul and other like really significant um, campaigns, which were, you know, transformational for many of the creators. And, you know, my mandate was to obviously grow the category. We want to, you know, make it more healthy and, and grow the, you know, the success of the projects and, you know, how much people are raising. But I think I was also trying to, propose a narrative that I think is still relevant in our industry around, you know, especially early stage um, musicians and bands and other creators, you know, using their community, even if it's small to sort of like make their case and that the campaign element of Kickstarter, like having to sort of have a moment to announce it and share it and grow it and, you know, hopefully have it be successful And the the sort of the math and the work that you have to do in preparation and while it's live, those are actually like super important skills to have as a, a, as a, as a songwriter, as a, as an artist. And, um, you know, in terms of being able to share your story and your message. And, um, and so I was sort of trying to propose collaborative scenarios with, with labels to say, you know, would, wouldn't it be a great thing to sort of have some kind of you know, mutually supportive scheme where if the artist had a successful campaign, you might automatically match it? And that could be sort of an established program that would help the artist become stronger and help the the label and make a, a more sound investment. And it sort of like equalizes a little bit the... the um, the relationship between the, the two and, you know, God forbid the, the artists have more leverage in their negotiations. I always was inspired by, you know, obviously De La So was an incredibly, you know, huge artist when they had been on Tommy Boy and Warner and, and, and all of those things. But when they did their Kickstarter campaign, you know, they had such success and were able to, you know, use that lack of, of advance need to have a really good back end deal um, on the distribution, and like, isn't that really what we're going for? Like, they own their their um, you know interne- intellectual property. Um, the partner that they're working with knows that there's an audience that's ready to go to you know support the work. Um, and I think that there was you know there were there was specifics to to iron out around making sure that everyone's contribution is remuner- new, remunerated properly but it can be done in a way that is like really much more fair and responsible. And, you know, if an artist perhaps isn't as successful as they expected, that's also important information. You know, like, what do you learn? I, in my career, I've had some, some low points too, and they inform me almost every day on what I don't want to do again. Right. So if you think about it and just from that logical sort of point of view an unsuccessful effort can be almost more valuable than you know raising the five thousand to record your ep or whatever it is incredible um so i
0: that is like and it's such a great point you make about you know kickstarter and you know just about like paying for the master and then the audience i like i love all that um because i was i was initially going to say like kickstarter to me is such a I mean it's fan facing and, and now you're the president yeah. of Song Trust and that's that that almost has nothing to do with fans, but you know
1: you, you... Well it's yeah. interesting, but you know because Song Trust, you know, works, I think what is probably not the most obvious connection point, but I think is something that, that has connected me, is we are offering access to a part of the industry. That has been historically very un- unaccessible, inaccessible, right? Like it's it's just like global publishing administration and collections from, you know, and direct collections from societies with through our direct affiliation network and the digital um, licensing schemes that we participate in are not something that like the independent songwriter or even an independent publisher has had a very sort of easy way to tap into. You know, historically, sub-publishing networks for small publishing companies or even medium-sized publishing companies are a pretty traditional scheme. And that, you know, those can be very successful if you have activity in that market that they can help you activate and, you know, make sure that you have all of the licensing opportunities that are relevant to that local market. But those aren't really as um, available to your average independent writer, producer, beat maker, whoever, now that's an increasingly important segment of the, the creative community. Um, and so what we, you know, how I think about, um, you know, the sort of the access that, you know, if the Kickstarter model is sort of like access to resources through your community. We have a sort of, you know, complementary zone of access to this, you know, infinite fractions of rights that you have to manage that you might represent and that you have to collect on. And we're trying to do it in a, you know, responsible, um, flexible and, you know, fair way. Um, so th- those to me are like the real sort of complementary zones. This is definitely a different part type of work than I've ever done before leading a, a company of this size and, you know, leading a product and engineering team and, you know, advocating for, um, resource allocation and prioritization across, you know, multiple dimensions where mostly I have been on the client facing side of things, um, prior to this, um, it's been super challenging and, you know, uh, you know, learning every day on lots and lots of different fronts, but it's really, really rewarding. So,
0: Music publishing is the number one revenue stream I see missing with artists and songwriters. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that's because um, when they sign up for their PRO, which almost all of them do, you know, the PROs are old enough and established enough that, you know, people like, okay, yeah, like sign up, you know, they sign up for ASCAP when they're a teenager or BMI or whatever. Um, but I think the point of confusion, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this, is when they're prompted to sign up for a publishing designee. Um, what Once they do that, what, you know, when I meet songwriters and artists of all levels... And I ask them their publishing situation. They're like, oh, I'm with ASCAP. Oh, I'm with BMI. Mm -hmm. And then I find Mm -hmm. out they are not collecting on their music publishing. Are you seeing this? Because you're obviously talking to way more songwriters than I am every day.
1: Yeah. I mean, our team, yeah, that's a lot of the, you know, like the first question, I think if you you go to our help center, like, you know, do I need song trust if I have ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, IMRO, PRS, any of the, you know, hundreds of, of societies around the world, and you know, there's a, there's lots of interpretations of how to to manage those rights and those royalties that you are due. Um, you know, so we there and and the way that they they are structured based on you know our industry sort of systems is that there's a publisher share, there's a writer share. Um, part of the publisher share does require you to have either an entity or as you say, and in, in, you know, some of the PROs like a designation that is like kind of comes up, adds up to 200% or whatever it is that, you know, that whichever one you're looking at, because they do sort of administer them differently. Um, there's also other, um, there are other royalties that are earned by your works based on all of the new emerging platforms and systems too. And there's also, then you add in multiple countries and if you, learn more and dig into it more about the reciprocal arrangements between societies for the specific rights that they are able to collect on. You learn that management of that on on a sort of one entity to one person um, without a traditional publishing infrastructure or what we think of as a modern publishing infrastructure um, is, is really hard. And, you know, I think it's arguable that with independent writers, like where if their earnings are primarily in their home country or their home territory, you know, it's probably more of an exception that you're earning tremendous sums globally, but it's still your money. And there's that other piece of, you know, the, the system where unclaimed works and unclaimed royalties then, unfortunately become sort of redistributed at certain stages based on local, you know, requirements and rules. And, you know, so we also see ourselves as part of like a source of, of, you know, a great deal of, of rights that we represent, a chance for that to be minimized. So the, the money to be distributed to its rightful rights owner. And, you know, that's a really important part of what we do as well. Agreed.
0: And again, just to define music publishing, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this. um, You know, I I would say, like, do you know what a record company is? I mean, most people on the street know what a record company's job is in theory, which is to you know, uh, to promote the recording and also exploit it in the legal sense and you know, collect as much money as possible. That's all music publishing is on the songwriting side. And you guys are handling the collection as aspect of that, which is um, really empowering because anyone can sign up for Song Trust. So, right. um, I mean, if, if you want to explain music publishing another way, feel free. Um, but I also want to hear about, you know, tell us how Song Trust started and tell us all about Song Trust.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just joined three years ago, so um, I've only been here, um, you know, for the last, we're, we'll celebrate our 10th anniversary next year. Um, the idea was our CEO and co founder, Justin Kalifowitz, is, um, you know, who had founded Downtown Music Publishing 13 years ago um, and realized that, you know, a sort of the, the vision for downtown um, wasn't something that was very scalable. No, it was uh, you know, his vision of of working with, you know, the iconic writers and and rights that and songs um in our industry and the sort of like precision of management of those rights, um and exploitation of those rights and helping them, you know, earn royalties was for one excuse me, segment of the of the, you know, industry, but that the you know, larger ecosystem. And as we see in the news almost every week now, the growing community of independent and self-released um, creators is, you know, like their access to this, 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 this infrastructure was really like not available at all. Um, and so he, you know, came up with the idea for Songtrust and built the proof of concept and, you know, co-founded it with Joe Conyers who, you know, led it for many years Um, until last year and now he's part of downtown music holdings Um, and it you know so that it's a pretty simple origination idea and what we've been trying to build over the last 10 years and you know sort of uh, primarily over the last three uh, with our direct business is really making that information available to independent creators sort of like to your original your question around you know if I have um ask cap, do I need sound trust? You know, a lot of the questions we get are like, do I need if I have sound exchange? do I you know there's so much sort of inconsistency in how information is shared um in our business that you know we do a lot of sort of this is what we do, this is how these are the rights, this is how they work. this is how we work with them. This is how that what the meaning would be for you. And, you know, try to make the case of, you know, how our, not just network, but our application of systems and processes and our publishing industry expertise matched against the network with to scale is something that is, you know, uniquely positioned to be, you know, a a good partner.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I am a huge song trust evangelist and I have nothing. Yes, to- I know. And
1: we're so grateful.
0: Well, thank <laughs> you. I, I owe it Like I have nothing to gain by doing so. It's just, you know, you said it's like the idea is, I think you said something like simple and effective and and that's something I've really learned as an entrepreneur. Um, And, and it's like, on one hand, like it is simple, but on the other, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was just, it was just so necessary. Again, when I explain it to people, it's like most people know what, TuneCore, CD Baby, mm-hmm. DistroKid is, but I feel like Songtrust was really the first self serve publishing option. I mm-hmm. I I, I could be wrong. I didn't realize it was ten years old already. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, you know, I mean, there are other people that do similar things to what we do in the market, but you know, I think our focus and how we present what we do um, is a little distinctive, even in this segment of like of individual creators and songwriters, because. We are really only focused on the rights management piece. So there are other, um, right. you know, companies that manage that, you know, sort of help with sync placements and things like that. That are, you know, I think that's great if that is successful for them and successful for their clients. Even as an individual writer and like rights owner myself, I know how difficult managing expectations around. Like a, a a an additional exploitation of your work, and you know the idea that you might get a big windfall of money, or even incremental windfalls of money that are you know like maybe not huge sums, but in it's just not it's it's something that I think when you manage the expectations around it, sync licensing is not the area of focus that you know you're you're in many cases managing a lot of disappointment, right? Um, and that's something that we're already disappointed enough (laughs) in the world that, you know, and and the work that we do, that we're focused on is so um, complicated that, you know, we've really decided, and this was decided before I joined, so I'm very comfortable with it, that we've really decided to focus on the rights management, the, you know, the precision of the work that we do and helping our clients get the money that they're owed as quickly as possible, as precisely as possible, and being a good sort of citizen, if you will, in the, the rights ecosystem with societies, with the DSPs, with the various licensing representatives um, in the industry and emerging platforms and, and doing that in a way that, you know, is, is um, you know, it might not sound very glamorous, but it's it's really important. And I think that's, again, what's pretty motivating to me.
0: Well, you guys are taking on the complicated part and simplifying it and streamlining it for songwriters. Like, I tried really hard to actually not, um, you know, break down publishing further in the book. I tried really hard to not like define a mechanical royalty. And then I'm like, I have to explain how they cover songs. So I I did have to do it. But I just wanted to educate, like, this is what music publishing is. And here's how you collect on it. Um, I interviewed Zoe Keating for the forward of the book. And she's like, Uh like, you can still break the revenue streams down further. I'm like, Zoe, they don't know what music publishing is. And they don't Uh know how to collect on it. So someday, you and I can write the advanced placement version. But like, Uh this is what we have to
1: uh,
0: educate on now. Um, So you talked about I mean, really, like you guys have world class collection. Um, I mean, I view it as like, I mean, it's the same collection mechanisms as downtown, which right. is one of the That's best right.
1: music publishers in the right.
0: world. So having access to that is phenomenal. Um, you mentioned you guys don't handle sync placement. So are you able to share like, like, are you able to give kind of recommendations to your clients on, on how and, and where they should go about yeah, that? Yeah,
1: we do, you know, we refer people to other, you know, the, one of the things is we, you know, make sure to emphasize that you, you as a client now have a hundred percent um, ability to write to license and collect the publisher share, um, and so that's a very you know we we expect that to also be a pretty powerful um, opportunity. You know, if you do like if, for example, if you are with a label and they present you the you know the master um, license opportunity, and you own your own publishing and you control the exploitation of it, <clears throat> then you will keep the that one hundred percent of that of that share of that license. So you know that is something that I think is an important um, and hopefully empowering aspect of what we offer. Um, it also, also, you know, there are certainly, there's lots of options of people who do this and some of whom who even do it at scale. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a perfectly fine thing that we'll refer people to, to do. And again, it's, you know, if that is the focus of your creative work, I think, and you've been, you know, working in music yourself for long enough to know that the amount of money available in those kinds of licenses has also shifted. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, like from maybe really large amounts at one point to smaller, and now maybe even more competitive and sort of some really exceptional cases that there, are you know, you'll get a, a big, big, huge creative license. Um, is, uh, you know, a little bit different than, than it has been. So again, that kind of goes back to like, what, that's not a a commonly discussed aspect of our industry, you know, like how much of the actual royalties and revenues, um, you know, we earn in aggregate are on sync. Um, and, you know, so I think that's the kind of thing, like if people are offering that, I'm sure it's a lot to, to.
0: Support it, <laughs> yes, um, I hope this is an okay question to ask if i if I can even articulate okay. it correctly. I guess, like, something I love about Song Trust is that your entire um, catalog is in one place. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I just really want to highlight that because it's so, this is the part that gets a little weird. It's so easy to tick that box when you're distributing with TuneCore Mm -hmm. or CD Baby. And of course you guys are also CD Baby's publishing administration. So I guess this isn't really a question unless you want to comment on it. I just, I, again, it's so nice to have all of your music publishing in one place instead of like one release is published here, one release is published there. It's just like, just consolidate and make your life easier is what I think. Yeah.
1: I mean... That is there, you know, that is, I think one very positive aspect of what we do is, you know, we can, you know, we offer the flexibility. So if you do have rights within, with another administrator, um, you know, as long as it's not the same works, you know, there, there, there is that possibility to, to work, you know, to yeah. represent limited, um, repertoire with us, um, and with some of the distribution companies, it is much more aligned to the work that they represent for you on, you know, your distribution of that work. And so a big part of our growth has been around people who aren't recording artists. You know, they're producers and they have shares of songs and they have other ways that they've been collaborating with writers um, and writer and, and different you know, uses of the works. So um, that's been a big area of, of focus for us. But I agree. I mean, I appreciate the compliment and I definitely agree that it's a nice, you know, we all have a lot of things to, to manage and, you know, you, everybody wants an improved solution for one size fits all. And I, and I understand that, that that is an advantage, perhaps if you are a recording artist and you're releasing works that using um, your distribution platform for the, the publishing administration as well makes sense. Um, But if you're, you know, have like, for example, my catalog of of songs is that I have shares of publishing rights on is about 50. And it's awesome to be able to see them um, in one place and understand all of the different exploitation and, you know, sort of map that to my, you know, my writer's statement from my PR last cap and, and be able to sort of, you know, understand things a little bit more. And, and truthfully, as you well know, as well, like a lot of people don't want to dig into those sorts of statements. They just want to get the check and they want to see where things are going. And that's what our platform version, you know, sort of like the com experience. That's what's really there to support. Um, so you can sort of see um, all of your activity historically and, you know, look into reports um, in, a, in a broad way. Or It's such a good point.
0: And, you know, Um, Again, of course, you represent so many songwriters and producers who aren't, you know, necessarily uh, public performing artists as as well. But um, yeah, just to to highlight that, you know, for artists, um, because I've had, I've talked to artists about it on this podcast, like, That box is really attractive to check when you're distributing your music. I just,
1: (laughs) I mean, we, we see it from CD baby. Like we know it's been a very successful and part important part of our growth too. You know, certainly we would never have between the work that we've done for downtown and the work that we've done for, for CD baby, arguably like pretty, pretty extreme versions of, of the sort of rights management landscape. You know, that's what makes us stronger. So, um, you know, that's, that's where we've, we've been informed by both of those opportunities. And, and yeah, we see how, you know, convenient it is for people to add that to their, to the, what they do.
0: But at the same time, if you don't distribute it with CD Baby next time, I I just think it can be... We're just trying to make your lives easier, people. <laughs>
1: yes, exactly. Yeah, we're here for you. And yes. uh, work with Emily. She knows how to, how to, you know, refer you to us.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, we're, exactly. Work with songdress. Um,
1: so last question.
0: What does building a sustainable music career mean to you? It is it's such
1: a great question. I am, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much like, you know, I wouldn't say I'm midway, maybe I'm more than midway through my, my working career, or maybe I'll never be done, you know, depending on how things turn out, knock wood. Um, but I, um, you know, I think my personal, you know, the things that impress me are people being able to make decisions for themselves based on information or the rights that they manage. And if you think about the headlines this week, I, I you know, I know this is a podcast that so people could be listening to at any time, but this was the week that Dylan sold his catalog, writer and writer mm-hmm. and publisher share, right? So like, it's a big effing deal and it's a little mm-hmm. bit wild to consider, but, you know, when people sort of ask me questions like, why would he do that? I'm like, I don't know. And no one does. And it's his to make, it's his decision to make, right? So yeah. I support any stage of life that you have that autonomy and authority to make decisions over how you want your work and your business to be, um, managed. I think what I, I, for artists or writers who are earlier in the career than Bob Dylan, you know, I really love a similar thought around being able to make those decisions and not having to be put in a position to give up rights in perpetuity or, you know, for, you know, whatever sort of like in, un, it might seem like unending term um, when you're 15 years old. So if you, you know, are other headlines of, you know, superstars who have, um, you know, made, uh, you know, deals early in their career, perhaps on the recorded side of music that then, you know, give up any sort of connection to the, the master ownership of those works And, you know, then that becomes very dramatic when they're not even 30 to say, like, they can never be part of the decision on how those how those works will be um, shared and and interpreted. And so I think if, you know, people can be part of that decision and the industry can also support that flexibility and not, you know, um, support that that autonomy um, and understand that it's, you know, it, that 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 there's great power and value in doing that. I think that's a much healthier reality. Um, and that's sort of where the sweet spot that I like to sort of walk in. It's a little bit you know, maybe inconsistent, but I think it it does make sense that that you know earlier in your career to have to make those decisions to believe in a promise, like the only way you'll ever become you know successful is to give up any sort of decision making around how these works will be used seems like really that that has to change you know and so I, I feel very good about where we sit in that in that part of the world
0: you should because we haven't said um you know when you do sign up for song trust to administer your songwriting rights the songwriter owns all their rights so we should make Correct. that there Correct.
1: yes you know, I, yeah I mean we touch on a little bit with the with the sync but yeah that's the thing it's like we're we're just your your partner in access and our term is you know is very flexible so we you know, support you. Um, you know, if a if a different opportunity came along that you thought was, you know, the right one for you in your career, then we want to support that. Um, you know, and not be sort of this prohibitive entity that I think, you know, ultimately ends up being very contentious and unpleasant. And like that's really what I don't have much time for in my life. I don't think that many people do. Yeah, it's like a lot of friction. Got a lot of unnecessary like land grabbing and and things that, you know, are uh contentious and unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Lord knows when you're working out of your bedroom or you know, your small laundry room or whatever you gotta do these days, um you you don't want it to be where you don't wanna be upset while you're doing it.
0: Well, you heard it from the horse's mouth, and that's something <laughs> I <think laughs> as well as you can get out of it, right? Like what comp what rights, you know, company says that in music ever. <laughs> you
1: know? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate that. I think, you know, that's, I, that's very important to us. So, you know, thanks for the opportunity to to share that perspective, Emily. I appreciate it very much.
0: Yeah. And I just want to add one last thing on the Dylan thing. I know that was super emotional for, I think, fans, industry people, all of that. But I, you know, I, I would guess it, it's, he's getting older, like, it's nice, you know, I would think the intention is like, I'm gonna make this choice and take care of my affairs as opposed to, I think like, I know Aretha, Aretha Franklin was a songwriter actually, but mm-hmm. I think her 10th will was found under the couch right, or something. Right. So maybe it was like taking care of that, you know, for his family. And- sure.
1: And, and it's his business, right? Exactly. Like, you know, I mean, he created the, the the art and the poetry and the, and the music, and it's, it's his to, to decide what to do with those, with what he's created. Um, especially as you say at this stage in his life and, and being able to be the one in charge of it. And I think that's, you know, I don't take exception with that. Um, so that's, and, and it's, that's, that part isn't really our business. Um, but, right. but I, I do find it hard to harder to, to handle when people who are in their early stages of their career then lose the authority yes. um, and, and, yeah. And, you know, that, that is that, and it's not at their own decision or it's based on a decision that wasn't, I think to some of what we've discussed, like wasn't informed by their understanding of the deep nuance of, of how things work and what perpetuity, I mean, not like people don't understand what perpetuity yeah. is. It's just like irrelevant when you're 15, exactly. right? Like, <laughs> cause you're, so. Yes. But again, yeah, we, I, I hadn't
0: even thought to talk about this on this on any of these podcast episodes, but yeah, it's, it's something for artists to think about, you know, whether, um, you know, you're further along in your career or not. It's just like making things easier for your family and, um, and your work. So it's, people aren't fighting about it because nobody, nobody wants that. So I don't mean to end on such a bummer note. Um,
1: <laughs> that's okay. No, we're good. I think it's an optimistic note, you know, okay. like there's new, there's new paths, right?
0: Yes. Exactly. And yeah, awesome. don't leave your will under the couch. Um, Please don't. Please don't. Yeah.
1: <laughs> all right. It was great talking to you. Thanks again for having me. And so go grateful.
0: Yes. Thank you, Molly. Um, it, was, it was just a, such a pleasure to catch up with you. And that is a wrap for this episode of how to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams. We will catch you on the next episode and have a g- great day, night, wherever you are. Thanks again. Thanks so much to Matthew Wong for composing the music for this podcast, as well as to my engineer, Nathan Kane, and absolutely to Molly Newman, president of SongTrust. Tune in next time where we discuss how to land a sync placement. And if you have questions or anything in the meantime, I'm at MWizzle on social media. Catch you then.